0: Good morning. How's your weekend? How's it doing now? All right. Hey, we're just going to jump right in then. You guys ready to do this? All right. Friends, we are finishing up a three part series on what we're calling deconstruction, which is the process by which you jettison your faith because you eventually believe you're believing in nothing. You take a critical look at what you believe, and you seek to get rid of that which is false, but for many of us, that leaves us empty-handed. Today, we're going to be in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Why that's important is because God has given you, he's given us a doubter that we need to take careful look at. I love it. God is not insecure. One of Jesus' disciples himself had a doubt so intense he didn't show up after the tomb tomb was called empty. And how God deals with that with Thomas, maybe you've heard of him doubting Thomas, how Jesus personally interacts with him will shed light on how we handle doubt. Now, the first sermon in the series, we talked about the concept of deconstruction, what that feels like, how disorienting that can be, what we do with that, how we learn how to own our faith in the midst of that. Last week, we talked less about deconstruction and more about construction. How do we build a faith, as Jesus would say, on the solid rock, and not one on sand, so that we can go the distance together and continue to walk with Jesus. Today, I'm not going to talk about any of that. I want to talk about doubt. Because doubt seems a little more benign than saying deconstruction, doesn't it? Every single person here has doubt, even if it's experiential. But here's what we do know. Doubt leads to deconstruction. It can. It did in Thomas's life. And we need to understand that. So I was actually thinking about this last sermon a couple weeks ago. Like, hey, what, what do we do? How do we, what would be the best way to help our church as we walk through that? And I was talking to my bride and said, hey, so when, do you, when have you doubted? She's like, oh, that's an easy question. Um, when I was right out of college, and you know, she's a Christian, grew up in a Christian household, and she got into the working world as a young nurse, and she said, what was really confusing is that everybody that I worked with, most people that I worked with, the majority of whom were not believers and some atheists, many of them were as good morally, if not better, than many of the people have grown up with in the church. And they became very confusing to me because I I believed that that shouldn't be so. And so is the gospel true? Is God real? Does his gospel actually transform people, or is it just something that we believe? And so she struggled with that. I did too in a different way, but I think that struggle is very prescient. It's very real to us. So just know this, friends. There's going to come a day when your doubt is reasonable to you. Yeah, you have a reason for your doubt. Everybody does. And what do you do when it seems reasonable to doubt God? That's what we want to know today. And, and we do know that if we pull on that string long enough on that doubt, everything we thought we once believed in God starts to unravel, doesn't it? So, man, the Lord has left us with a fantastic passage. So I was thinking about this. What would you do if your Bible had nothing about doubt, other than believe? God has given you a supreme doubter and giving you an example on how to handle that, all right? So that excites me. I'm excited for that. I want to jump in to that. I'm going to read right now chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. It's toward the end of John. So Jesus has been crucified. He's been laid in the tomb. And then Mary and some of the disciples have figured out that the tomb's empty. And it's not a good thing. Nobody's happy about that, all right? I'm going to pick it up in verse 19. On the coming evening of that day, the first day of the week, so this had been Sunday night, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, and hear the emotional force of this, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and to place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This man walked with Jesus for three years. Thomas didn't say, oh, wow, that's I'm relieved. Wow, really? Okay, I've heard, I heard, because Mary said something about I didn't believe her, but, but you've seen him. Really? Can you explain? Never believe. Never believe. There's a force there. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we submit ourselves to your word. We ask that you would open our eyes that we might behold the beauty of, which is in this text today, which is revealing to us in real time by the power of the Spirit through the work of the risen Lord who you are. Please speak to us in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, here's how we're going to approach this text today. One, I want you to see that doubt is reasonable. I mean, I should doubt? No. What I mean to tell you is there's a reason for your doubt, and many times it's reasonable. One of the reasons we don't get out of that ditch is because we don't face it and understand it, like Thomas is. Secondly, I want to give you some reasons to doubt your doubt. Hear that? Well, how are you going to answer all my questions? Absolutely not. could never do that on one Sunday. But I want to dislodge some of your doubts, doing it this way. I want to give you a reason to doubt some of your doubts that I think we all share in this day and age, probably in this church. And lastly, we're just going to go to Jesus with Thomas and see how that works out for us, okay? So first, doubt is reasonable. Let's understand how this worked out. Things are going from bad to worse. Jesus had promised that he was going to usher in a new kingdom. He had promised that he was one with the Father. He had promised that he would overthrow sin and death and all tyranny. He had promised eternal life. He had promised that he would kick open a way to heaven. He would reconcile God's people to God himself. He would restore worship. And then he died. When something you hope in goes away, and let's just be honest, death is final. At least that's the assumption here. Your hopes get buried with it. So when Mary Magdalene was at the tomb and she saw that the rock was rolled away and she went and she got Peter and John and they said, yep, he's gone. The assumption was not that He had risen. The assumption is that he has been stolen. They're making a mockery of Jesus. Because Rome was good at that. So they were not excited. They were not happy. Peter and John went back. Mary stayed. There's a lesson there. And she waited on the Lord. And the Lord shows up. Jesus shows up. She assumes he's the gardener. And he calls her name Mary. She knows it's rabbi. And she runs and she gets the rest of the disciples, or goes back to them, telling them no doubt, and I don't know that they believed her. Friends, they were in grave danger. The way that you kill a movement in the ancient Near East and Rome and Palestine is you kill its leader publicly, They executed Jesus publicly. It would be like doing it down here in Boston or somewhere where everybody can see him. He's publicly shamed and executed. And if you're following him, we're coming for you. The way that Rome kept peace for a 1,000 years, they would let you do what you want pretty much. But if you started to incite riot or started to lead people to revolution, swift violence. They would bring the force of the imperium on you and you're done. And they knew that and they were hiding because Jesus died. So there was a reason for those doubts. And Jesus shows up and the first thing he says is peace. Right? The very thing that you don't have anymore, peace I bring to you. And you thought this was the end? It's actually the beginning. The Father has sent me, I'm alive, I'll explain that to you, but know this, I'm going to send you as well. So what you assumed was the end of hope is actually the beginning. I've inaugurated the kingdom, right? And I'm, the king is standing on the dirt right now, and he's glorified, and you're going to be my witnesses. But Thomas wasn't there. I don't know why Thomas wasn't there, per se, but I have a good reason to believe. He was absolutely devastated. He'd spent the last three years with Jesus. He was an all-in disciple. If you look at John 11, 16, when Lazarus dies, he was kind of all their friends. Thomas says, let's go die with him. He wasn't in the shadows. He wasn't somebody that hung out and waited for something to happen. He was all in. I believe that he was devastated. I believe that he was dwelling in doubt for safety reason. I think it was too risky for Thomas to hope anymore. He had found somebody he loved. He had found somebody that had promised everything he actually wanted in life. He had found someone that actually understood the purpose and the meaning of life. He had found somebody that sometimes seemed fully human. And other times, the way he talked sounded completely like God himself. He was so drawn into him. And then when Jesus died, he's like, I give up. I'm exhausted. It is way too much for me to hope again. Like, my dad died of cancer when I was younger. And so I was thinking about that stomach cancer, and he went really quick. And the doctor said he'd be fine. Now, if I got stomach cancer and the doctor told me I'm going to be fine, do you think I would believe him? No, I would not. It's too risky. Thomas didn't want to even believe. there was a possibility. Yeah, we know you saw something, disciples, but Thomas did not believe it was the risen Lord. I want, you to, I want you to understand why doubt is reasonable in this context because there's two ways Thomas can doubt here. One is a natural doubt. Do you understand what a natural doubt is? Dead people don't live again. That's a natural doubt that Thomas has to overcome or engage in real terms. But I don't think that's really what he's worried about here. Do you see the force of Thomas? I will never believe. There is an emotional doubt that comes with Thomas being devastated and having loved Jesus and putting his whole life in his, on hold while he worshiped him and learned from him to see his Lord be executed publicly and put in a grave, and now he's missing. And some of them are saying, we've seen him. And like, I don't know. You haven't. You've seen a ghost or something like Jesus, but you haven't seen him. There was an emotional weight to that doubt. He couldn't risk believing again. So understand, doubt does have a reason, and sometimes the reason that you doubt isn't just the data, it's not just an academic concern, it's not evidentiary, sometimes you doubt because there's emotional weight behind it, and you've been burned before, or it feels like you have in believing, or in the church, or through something that you is connected to trusting in God. And that's where Thomas was. And pro- I, I think I would make this, this, this claim here that emotional doubt is the worst kind. It's the hardest to get over. So doubt is reasonable. There's a reason for your doubt. Now, hold on. We're, we're going to keep going here. Let's talk about some reasons for you to doubt the things that you're doubting right now. All right, let's dislodge those a little bit. Now, you guys have probably heard of Tim Keller. Pastor Tim Keller had a great church in New York City. Uh, He's still an author. Um, If you're a skeptic, if you're approaching the Bible as a skeptic, maybe you're watching online or listening to the podcast, I would suggest this book called Making Sense of God. It's not earth-shattering, but what Tim Keller will do is he inches you forward to help you understand what is your doubt anchored in? Why are you doubting that? There's a reason for it. So it's pretty good. I would encourage you to do that. He quotes uh, this guy by the name of Michael Poanyi, and he writes an essay called The Critique of Doubt. And the basic thesis is this. Doubt and belief are equivalent because you can't believe, you can't really doubt something unless you replace it with another belief. For instance, if you say, there's no possible way. There can be a God. I will make that statement, and I will die on that. There is no such thing as a God. That assumes that you, in fact, have enough information to know that as fact, which you don't. It requires you to, to replace your faith with faith in something else. It's very good, and he's very right. There's no such thing as a neutral, objective idea. You are committing yourself by faith to believe in another set of facts when you doubt God. So just understand that. I think that was helpful for me to understand. So I'm going to give you four doubts to consider doubting. I think they're probably things that we as a church struggle with, essentially as a culture as well. Here's the first doubt. Science is more reliable than religion in answering the big questions of life. I don't doubt that, or I've never had that doubt. You have had that doubt before. The doubt that science is more reliable than religion, or in our specific case, the gospel, in answering the big questions of life, comes with an assumption, and here's the assumption, understand this, that science is based on objective facts and religion is based on faith. And the two do not belong in the same circle, nor are they related. Friends, understand this. Science is a gift from God. It's wonderful. It's empiricism. It's making observations and then making conclusions based on that data. It should be testable. It should be reliable. Science has been a gift to all of mankind. But you have to understand the claims that science makes sometimes that go into the bigger questions of life, friends, you have to make you have to interpret the data. And as much as we want to be objective, many times the conclusions that science makes require faith. For instance, a pure materialist worldview would say the only thing that matters in life is matter itself. It's what we observe. It's what we can measure. There is nothing else out there. There is no God. There is no spirit. There is no transcendent. All of life is a product of time and chance, end of story. If you want to have a meaningful life, I'm sorry. Just try to be happy and do something good. I don't know why you would do something good because it doesn't matter. Just do something you want. Friends, that is a huge faith claim because science cannot, nor would it, make that proposition and you can't prove it. So if you're going to embrace that, understand you are, friend, taking a leap of faith. You're choosing to act in faith. So, friends, you're not a, we're not judges here. We're subjects. Be humble. There are things you don't understand. There are claims we make that may be true and may not be true when it comes to science. And it's a beautiful gift from God. Sometimes it veers into the realm of theology, and sometimes theology inappropriately swerves over to science. But it's a gift. Here's how faith works when it comes to faith, when it comes to this. There's a Quaker by the name of Elton Trueblood. Now, he was a 20th century theologian, author. He ended up being, um, I think he was the chaplain at Stanford and Harvard. And he explains faith this way. He said, faith is not belief without proof. It's trust without reserve. You hear that? When you're choosing to have belief, in the gospel, it's not without proof. You're choosing to trust completely. And we, we trust a lot of things without all the evidence, don't we? So you can unseat that doubt. You can unseat that doubt. Science is beautiful, but it's not in conflict. Secondly, we talked about this already. Many times, unbelievers are as good as, if not better, than Christians you know. That causes doubt. That causes pain. That causes confusion. Here's the assumption that doubt is growing out of the assumption is that God only loves and saves good people. That sounds like a reasonable claim, doesn't it? In fact, Most of the world would say that. If there's a God, then he would save good people only. In fact, most Christians would say that. But the Bible does not say that. What does the Bible say? Galatians 2 tells us that no one is justified or made right or righteous. No one stands righteous before God or anybody else according to works of the law, but only through faith in Christ Jesus. Ephesians says it another way. It says we are saved by grace through faith. And oh, by the way, this is a gift from God, not based on works that none of you should boast. So for understanding scripture, right, for understanding the life of Jesus correctly, don't doubt God because his family is raggedy. friends. you should expect a bunch of people in his family that are in bad shape. In my experience, Jesus doesn't really pursue people that have it together. So if we're saved by grace and not by our works, you can expect, you can expect that. You can expect to see people that are just morally better. And that's how God's love works. Yes, should the gospel transform? Yeah, it should. But it doesn't work quickly sometimes. It takes time and years and being in the church and rustling through this. And it's a dirty process. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are conspiring against you being pulled back into whatever has you. So doubt that. That should not cause you concern. Number three, and here's a big one. The Bible is full of contradictions An unsubstantiated myth. This thing you guys call the Bible, the Word of God, you submit yourself to it, I've read it, it's full of stuff that doesn't make sense, it's full of myth that can't be substantiated, and it's full of contradictions. It's a common source or kernel of doubt in our lives. Here's the assumption. Christians naively and uncritically just receive every word that the Bible says. Where I would say, yes, Christians do receive the word of the Bible, it's not uncritically. And I don't mean critically as we put ourselves in authority over it. I mean there's different genres. There's different stories. There's a unified thing happening in this Bible. And yes, there are contradictions. Things that seem to our Western mind to not make sense. How can the Gospels place the events in different ways? So here's what I'm going to say about this. I can't explain it any better than one of our elder candidates did. His name is Pat Collins, and his capstone project to complete his training was to take a college course called the Introduction to the Hebrew Bible. And then he was to do a presentation to us on it, which he did last week. And he was very nervous about it. He didn't tell me why, but the reason he was nervous about it is because sometimes when you see how the sausage is made, you don't want to eat the sausage anymore, right? So he was afraid that as he looked into these 66 books that we call the Bible, that were compiled over almost 1,500 years in three different languages, he would see just that. It's a bunch of stories that really don't say anything. And in fact, as he, as he began his course, it got worse. But as what he told us, And he gave a beautiful presentation. As he dug in and as he understood Hebrew poetry and narrative and plot and summary, and he understood how that all worked together, he gave the most powerful explanation of what he was seeing. He said, I not only don't worry about that doubt anymore, I have more confidence after seeing how the sausage is made that this 66 books of the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. And he explained that to us over and over and over. And one of the ways he explained that was that it's like different movements in a symphony, all the books, and it's very clear that God is a composer. You can't look deeply into it and not see how God is moving the message of the Bible. So one of the reasons we embrace this doubt, and it dislodges us and unsettles us, because we just don't read it like that. We listen to a sermon, we read a devotional, we don't take the time to dig into the word and let it dig into us. And as he did that, his doubts were dispelled. And I can tell you from going to seminary, there's a 1,000 PhD dissertations on every contradiction. And the, most of them are really cogent. A lot of times the reasons we don't understand the contradiction is because we're looking at it from a Western frame of mind. And this is God utilized actual human authors in their cultural context, and they write like it. And yes, he inspired them to do that. And we can understand that. So don't let that doubt unseat you. Be confident that it is God's story. Dig into it. And the last one, and I think this is a big one for us. Christians suffer horrible lives of suffering, right? It happens. You'll know a faithful Christian, and they have a horrible life of suffering. So how can God be good? That can be a significant doubt, whether you've suffered before or whether you know somebody who suffered. Friends, let me just say this. Is it reasonable for you to believe that you would understand every motive, every plan, every purpose as a finite creature, that you would understand those things even when they come from an infinite mind? Is that reasonable? Is it reasonable that you would understand every motive and plan and action of God when He's infinite? We can't even find the end of the universe. And you're a creature. You had no vote on it. You are not the source. You are not like Him. You are a reflection of Him. Is it reasonable for a three-year-old to understand why we don't get to go and get chicken nuggets today?" All your answers are going to be beep. I don't care. You make no good sense to me, Mom and Dad. Now, extend that gap between the finite, which is us, and the infinite as his creatures. So that mountain sound trite, but it's true, friends. Let me tell you how Job answered that. Now, he suffered significantly. The end of Job, chapter 42, he recounts what God said. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. I, don't, I didn't know what I was saying. I, I spoke about two things wonderful for me, two wonderful which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Job says, I had heard of you, but I didn't see you. Therefore, I repent. Into the dust. We're made of dust. So if that causes you doubt, remember, is it reasonable for you to understand the plans of God? It's hard, friend. I know. So where do we go with these doubts or any other doubt we didn't cover? Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "'Peace be with you.' Then he said to Thomas, "'Put your finger here and see my hands.'" And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? This is for you. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Friends, I'm going to ask you to take your doubts to the risen Christ. You're not going to get traction the way you need to. Even if you're unbelieving right now, take your doubts to Jesus. Thomas approached him as someone who did not believe. And Jesus met him where he was. Jesus said, come on, let's do this. He wasn't antagonizing him. There are so many things that Jesus could have said he met Thomas where he was, touch it, touch my hands. But Jesus didn't just meet Thomas there, and he didn't just leave him there. He called him out of an identity of unbelief to believe. That just blows me away. In modern circles, Jesus would have said, You don't trust me, we can never trust you again. Get out. Jesus met him. Touch me. See it. So he meets him there. He calls him out of unbelief. And friends, understand this. You don't need to have an epiphany You do not need to have a Damascus moment where everything becomes clear. What you need to understand is you're following a risen Lord. You can take your doubts to Him. It's not that hard to understand how to trust Jesus. It's not that hard to understand who Jesus is. You may not have all your objections answered, but you can follow Him. In fact, I would propose that until you follow Him in relationship, you won't understand. I mean, think of a relationship. How do you grow in a relationship if not spending time and being willing to trust that person? So take your doubts to the risen Lord. And notice this. Did you see that Thomas circled back to the church? Where was, where was Thomas a week later? He was with him. They had told him, he'd seen the Lord. He's like, no, you haven't. But he shows up. The reason that Thomas sees the risen Lord, experiences Jesus, is because of his doubt. And God, in his amazing mercy and wisdom, puts this account in the Gospels for you. And Thomas worked it out in the church. He didn't stay at home Googling it. He didn't listen to a bunch of podcasts. He didn't talk to people who were like, yeah, yeah, we knew Jesus was a failure. He worked it out in the church. Friend, if you want to get traction, you've got to work it out with your folk because Jesus is among his people. Isolation always feeds deception, and there's no way out of it. And it hurts. Jesus has a relationship for you if you will receive him. So take your doubts Jesus. He will meet you where you are. He ain't going to leave you there. You've got to learn how to follow him, even though every single one of your objections are not answered. You can do that, and Jesus is found among his people. And the last thing I'll say about this, man, Jesus isn't hiding anything. How many people have you been burned by that you found out something later about them? Jesus has nothing to hide from you. He's not even ashamed of his wounds. He's showing Thomas, yeah, yeah, right. There's nothing that's going to come out later about Jesus. There's nothing to hide. He was executed publicly. He appeared publicly. He taught publicly after his resurrection. And if you're Thomas... Those marks are not just evidence. They answer his emotional doubt because where our doubt really goes is he's not good. There might be a God, but if there is, he doesn't understand me. Jesus is like, come on, touch me. These marks, friend, are for you, Thomas. I'm not afraid of them. I'm not ashamed of them. These marks answer your deepest doubt. I am good, I love you. These wounds came about because I love you. He's not ashamed of them. So what do you do when unbelief unravels every single thing that you've believed? Is it this simple? Yeah. You need to find a way to take it to Jesus. You need to find a way to do that with his people. You need to find a way to put your face in his word instead of just hearing a few verses. Because here's what I will tell you. Truth will have no effect in your life if you don't believe it. So Jesus is calling you to believe. He's calling you out of unbelief and you don't have to have everything answered. Trust him, give him your life, trust him. He's hope. He will cover your sin, he will give you purpose, He will give you new life. He will change you from the inside out. He will give you a family, and it's a messy one, and he will give you a future that's untouchable. Trust him. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. I wonder, Lord, what it was like, we wonder, what it was like for Thomas in that moment to make the boldest declaration of your deity, my Lord and my God. Lord, let us listen to this doubter, as he saw the risen Lord, and let us place our faith in you, and let us take our doubts to you. Lord, I pray that you would overcome them. I pray that you would give us new minds, new eyes, ears to hear and see, and a new heart to walk in belief. And we lift this up in the name of Jesus. Amen.